Let's go on to your next patient. So this is now a 38-year-old woman who presented in 2007 with stage 4 colon cancer. Came in with a very large abdominal mass, which is her liver down to the right pelvic crest. Workup showed that she had a transverse colon cancer, biopsied both places. It was an adenocarcinoma. And she was begun on Bev Fulfox, quickly developed a reaction to her oxali, so she was changed to just Bev Fulfiri. And treatment continued, okay, from spring to fall 2007. Her tumor became non-measurable, non-palpable, definitely smaller, still had bilober disease, but primarily right-sided tumor, but she had at least segment, I think it was three in the left lobe. So she saw a liver surgeon who explored her and just thought there was too much disease to try to resect it. But he did multiple areas of radiofrequency ablation to the right lobe of the liver and also hit the small area on the left lobe. Came back to us, this is late 2007, into early 2008, her marker started to rise again, and her CAT scans post-radiofrequency ablation looked ugly, but there was clearly area in the left side of her liver that was growing. So she was begun back on therapy using cetuximab and CPT-11 with marked improvement again in her markers and this area in the liver, the left side of the liver, showing marked improvement. We continued her on treatment for a long time with a combination treatment and then with cetuximab alone. She's young. She kept coming in. Her tumor didn't show. She wasn't progressing anywhere else. So in 2009, I asked her to see another liver surgeon. Her original liver surgeon had moved away. And so she saw this second surgeon who looked at her and said, well, you know, I think I may be able to do surgery, but she's going to need a right hepatectomy and she's going to need at least one segment of the left lobe. So she did undergo surgery and also had the transverse colon removed. It was big surgery. She was young, but it was definitely very, very, very difficult. So even as a 34-year-old, this was huge surgery. And sure enough, she had viable tumor still in the right lobe of the liver. When we looked at it, she had viable tumor in the segment of the left lobe. But the tumor in her colon, actually, there was no viable cancer left, but it had been tattooed, removed in astomosis, and she recovered. You know, it took her a long time. The recovery period from this hepatic surgery was long. Her postoperative CA was in the fours. She stayed that way, but began to rise again in early 2010. And scans showed that she had a single lesion. She had a very large remnant left lobe, which obviously hypertrophied. But there was a growing lesion. It was a single segment. So went back to her surgeon. It was also close to blood vessels. We couldn't do radiofrequency ablation, but she got cryoablation kind of didn't do much. We got her back on cetuximab and around a TCAN and she markers regressed. The tumor regressed a little bit, but she's definitely getting beat up by all of this. So she saw our interventional list who did a hepatic angiogram, found that this single segment was fed by a major blood vessel, sort of embolectomized the collaterals and then did a yttrium sphere coil embolization. And soon thereafter, little by little, her CA had gone up to over 100, started to creep down, and little by little by little, this lesion became smaller and smaller and smaller, to the point where now her CA is 4.2. We don't see any measurable disease in her liver where we embolectomized her. 
And she has two young kids. She's working two days a week. She's sort of had a very, oh God, she's just a, she's a spirit. Seven years of living and trying to treat this incurable cancer. She has a spouse or partner? Oh yeah, she has a husband, very supportive husband. Again, she was telling us her kids when she was first diagnosed were like 16 months and two or three years, and now they're 10 and eight. Yeah, the husband's very much in the picture. She has a big family, seven brothers and sisters. But as she reminded us, you know, when she's looking good and when she gets the news that we don't see any cancer, people respond to her like, oh, great, you're all better. But she understands that this is a journey. But she is doing really well. I mean, we were kidding about it. She used to ask me, do you think I'm cured? And I said, well, if Karen, you got to wait. Do you think I'm cured? <laughs> well, I don't know. Now I'm, well, do you think I'm cured? I said, I don't know, but maybe. So I don't know, you know. It's Neil, we, five years ago, we presented her with Axel when I did this five really? in 2009. Right after wow. her second resection, Axel met hmm. her. So five years later, she's moving on. Wow. So I want to pick up on a few of the points here in the case. But first, just again, Johanna, any impressions about her as a person? Huh. Oh, my goodness. I mean, she's incredible. Her story does not do her justice. I mean, I was sitting in the room waiting for the next patient to walk in, and in walks this beautiful, healthy-appearing young woman who could almost be a model. And she was vibrant and well-spoken and... She completely understands where her disease is. And she's, and this will tell you a little bit about her, is that she's done a lot of volunteering in the clinic where she's met mostly young patients. She said about 15 to 20 now, all of whom are under the age of 50 who were diagnosed with her same disease. And she's helped them through their disease and she's watched every single one of them pass away. And she understands where she is in her course. And she knows that every day is a gift and that the next time she comes into the doctor's office, it may be tragedy again. But she is an incredible example of living almost with an anvil over your head every day. And I cannot say enough about this young woman. I wanted to sit there and talk with her all day long. So um, I'd like to hear about her all day long, but let's maybe get back to the more clinical aspects of this case. And, you know, some general things I wanted to cover that apply, I think, to her as well as some of your other patients. Now, I'm not sure exactly where along the line she had KRAS testing, but, you know, what kind of KRAS testing did she have? So actually, Neil, this was 2007. We didn't know about so KRAS you didn't even, 2007. I mean, do you know her KRAS status right now? Well, she's KRAS wild type. Yeah, we've gotten old tissue, but she bespoke that because she had done so well. So 2007, eight, we didn't have that information, so we treated everybody. But she did. She developed a real bad rash, and her tumor really responded. So it turns out, true enough, she was a KRAS wild tumor. We never looked at BRAF on her. Curiously enough, I mean, she's young. Her microsatellite instability studies, mismatch repair studies were all normal. This isn't a Lynch or inheritable-like tumor. So, Johanna, where do we stand today in terms of KRAS, BRAF, you know, predictors of benefit from EGFR antibodies? It seems like there's a little bit of transition going on. Right. So the transition that we're seeing is that we used to, and we 
commonly when we send off a tumor for KRAS mutation, you're testing only for codons 12 and 13 mutations. And what we've seen is that there are other areas where KRAS or NRAS can be mutated that might affect outcomes for patients that are treated with EGFR inhibitors. And the first study that was published looking at this was from the PRIME study, which was Fulfox plus or minus panitumumab. And they went back and did a deep look at the KRAS mutation status for the patients on the study. And they found that, in fact, about 20% of KRAS wild-type patients do potentially hold another mutation in KRAS that we don't test for. And so what they found is when they looked at those particular patients, their outcome, they did not see any improvement from the addition of panitumumab. And there was even a suggestion that those patients could have a worse outcome if given panitumumab. And we've seen now very similar data that has come out of the FIRE-3 study, which was the first line full theory with either bevacizumab or cetuximab. And so when you take out all of the KRAS mutated patients, including what we now call the expanded KRAS mutation analysis patients, patients who are truly KRAS wild type do have very impressive overall survivals compared to if they receive EGFR inhibitors compared to not. What this has also told us is that given with the potential for poorer outcomes for patients who have KRAS mutations, particularly in the expended testing, that we should probably be testing everybody for all of the potential KRAS mutations. So it's caused us to change our way of practicing where we now have to send off our KRAS mutation analysis for expanded analysis rather than just the basic 1213. I'm curious how this has affected you, Dan, in terms of where you send your test and are you able to get this expanded analysis? Yeah, I think it's kind of, what should I say, it's we've sort of walking the same walk with our lung cancers now, you know, where it's just not about KRAS, it's not just about EGFR, it's about all of these extra molecular or mutations that we're looking for. So we're very, very, very fortunate that sort of access to these studies were not restricted at all if we need it. I must say in our practice, it has not become a standard of looking at all of these mutations as sort of a de novo test. But when we see these patients individually, before we use any of these EGFR blockers that we do test in our wild type patients. Do you think, Johanna, this is going to become standard? In other words, you know, it's just going to make its way into practice, and this is what everybody's going to get? Yeah, I think it's going to have to. Again, the FIRE3 data that was presented at ESMO really showed that potential, even with an arenotecan-based chemotherapy, of poor outcomes for patients with those mutations who receive cetuximab. So I think that we're going to have to shift our practices to doing that. That being said, We didn't until recently have those commercial analyses available, but now we do through multiple different companies. So I think just like when we started to check KRAS in general, it's going to be just a learning curve of people getting used to sending it off for the expanded analysis.